I am the worst research participant ever. Surveys annoy me. I do a lot of survey research. So I always think, what would convince me Mm -hmm. to take the survey and participate? And if I can be convinced, then I think um, maybe other people will too. Whereas I'm a big sucker. And if you ask me to, I'm like, okay, (laughs) I'll totally do that for free. (laughs) I can't tell. Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern. Today, Jacob's going to bring us something we can all like genuinely relate to in pop and culture. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss the academic article, Spatial Proximity as a Behavioral Marker of Relationship Dynamics in Older Couples. And then in Good or Bad Advice, it is time for my favorite segment. I'm newly titling, by the way. Various things found around the social meds. <laughs> Too wordy? What do you guys think of my new... No, uh, I love it. I just love your use of social meds. <laughs> yeah, it's like needs and meads, but media. Mm. Anyway, if you have any advice that you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. You can email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us at attached podcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message also wherever you listen to our podcast youtube apple spotify a blah 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 and so on please rate that's my favorite app a blah 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 i love the a blah 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 app it, it's my version of etc etc but before we get to all the goodness of this lovely episode how are you guys doing what's up what's new in your world or what's old what's happening what the haps what's that well, and while you guys talk, I'm going to enjoy my scrambly eggs because I haven't had breakfast this morning. <laughs> it's a professional podcast we're running here. <laughs> You're well, eating with a fork around the microphone. That's really, that's really something. <laughs> so you guys can hear it. This is ter- quickly turned into an ASMR. Anyway, it, go it on, Jacob. Did. I feel relaxed Sorry. now. Um, well... <laughs> You know, there's a lot of words you could use to describe me. Sure. Right? But I don't think anyone who knows me would use the word handy to describe me. No, I am no. not. We've also covered this on the podcast. Go on. I, I'm looking yes. forward to this story. I just want to redeem myself a little bit is, is okay. what I was going to say. So when we moved into this house about five years ago, it came with one of those newfangled sinks that has all the motion sensitive things that you can like turn on. And like, you know, you just like wave your hand over or wave in front and like the water turns on. Yeah. No, don't buy one. They're the worst. So it's a (laughs) Moen sink. So if you buy it for looks, you buy it for life, as is their catchphrase. Wow. And in the last four or five years since we've been here, it's the motor, the sensor has broken three times. What? So every time we like call, they send us a new part or a new faucet all together and like, in the past, I've had somebody, like a plumber, come and fix it. Well, like, it broke again. And so we we're just like, no, this isn't happening. I was just like, let's just buy a new faucet. I do not want this motion-sensitive thing. We're going to be doing this every, like, six yeah. months to a year. So we go to Home Depot. We buy a new faucet. And 
one of my our neighbors right across the street he's like really good at this kind of stuff you know he's like some sort of engineer and he's finishing his basement and he like replumbed their kitchen and i was like oh i'm just gonna text him have him come over he's out of town okay so i looked at chelsea and was like do you want me to do this she's like okay what we'll do is you can give it a shot and it works. You can give it a shot. Yeah, like, well, great. If not, we got to get our backup friends on the phone because I have a couple other friends who are good at this stuff. And I was like, that's fine because I might need the help. I just want you to know. Tell us. That though it took me a while, uh-huh. I successfully removed and installed a new kitchen faucet yesterday. Wow. Congratulations. Like, I mean, they, you know, I did like, not think that was the punchline, to be honest. Yeah, like, I just want to send that out there that, you know, like, I've had a lot of difficulty fixing things in this 100-year-old house in my life, but I have to celebrate the good news yes. of we have a working faucet that doesn't drip and no longer have to wave our hand around to get it to go. All we have to do is just turn, turn it, it and it looks great. So that's Amazing. what my day was yesterday. Yay. Such success. Congratulations. Nice work. I love Thank it. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I just need a little bit of validation. You know, there's a few things in my life I'm proud of, you know, like my family, my PhD, and installing a faucet. <laughs> Those are all things that you definitely need to be proud of, Jacob. And I'm sure that there are more in your life. You want to have a little sesh real quick about going through those things? You good? Good. I'm good. Okay. Woods, what's going on with you? I uh, yesterday I, I installed two faucets. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even that proud of it because it was so easy. So it's cool. <laughs> it's actually it's actually really not that difficult to install a faucet. I'll be honest with you, it's really not. I just went for it. I did both. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, How about you, Patricia? <laughs> three you up to three faucets <laughs> is that really all you're gonna say woods <laughs> well i did not actually install any faucets believe it or not it is cool here in east tennessee and a couple of months back i put in a bunch of our summer peppers <laughs> to ferment oh okay sure we had picked them i cut them and i started fermenting them to make a hot sauce, you guys, I finally removed the peppers from their brine and made a hot sauce for the very first mm. time. I had never oh, made uh. a fermented hot sauce and it was spicy, but good. Nice. I was very proud of myself. So why do the peppers need to ferment in order to make a hot sauce? It's a type of hot sauce. There's vinegar-based hot sauce, right? Okay. So that's the preservation method. Gotcha. So vinegar... Um, like jams, um, the acid and the sugar preserves them mm. and then you can them and stuff like that. So another way like sauerkraut or other preservation method mm. is fermentation. So you have to submerge them in this kind of salt water and it eventually turns into, I'm going to say lactic acid and hopefully that's right. If it's not, <laughs> my bad. <laughs> um, and that um, preserves the preppers. Or whatever you put, like if it's you put cabbage in there, it's sauerkraut. If you put oh. cabbage and spice, it's kimchi. If you put pickle, it could be cucumbers, fermented cucumbers. Anyway, so that's the preservation method we used. And we blended it all up. 
It was really spicy, but it was really, really good. And it was like this vibrant orange color because our peppers were orange, not because of any other reason. It was because the peppers were orange. And then the other batch was a vibrant like red. I was amazed like how like bright it kept. You know, sometimes when you cook things or whatever, it kind of turns off color. Not off color, but like browner, right? Like just that, that happens. So much fun. And I did all of the blending outside because when I did the oh, cutting right. inside, the baby, I, uh, got <laughs> the baby got hurt. So we did it yeah. outside so as to not hurt the baby. Um, and it was fun. It was good. It was successful. And I was nice. talking to my husband and I think I like doing new things. And I'm like, okay, done with that one. Moving on to the next one. I might have adult ADHD because I like to just do new things. I don't really like to perfect and keep on doing the same things that I've been doing. I just like to do new things. So who knows if I'll ever make hot sauce again, but I definitely have done it once. Moving on to the next thing. (laughs) What is the next thing? Do you know yet? Faucets. Oh, yeah. I'm going to become an expert on faucets. Faucets. Good good advice. (laughs) I was so proud of myself. No, you should be. You should be. It's just, it's just uh, the nature of the podcast. First up, pop and culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and family, of course, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. For this first segment, we like to take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how they view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us? Let's talk about Midnight Mass from Netflix. I know you all aren't horror genre type of people. This is kind of like the third installation on Netflix. The first one was Haunting of Hill House, Blythe Manor, which I talked about last year on the podcast. And this is like the third iteration called Midnight Mass. What I love about, I don't remember the guy's name who like writes and directs these things, but he hers really, it's not necessarily like the horror is like the creepy, scary thing in of itself. It's all of these other parts of the world going on around them. This isn't the main focus of Midnight Mass, but it's what I want to talk about today because I think that this happens quite frequently. Okay. It takes place on this island community that I think is supposed to be like off the coast of like uh, the Northwest Canada or like United States, like Oregon, Washington area. It's made up, but there's only like a couple of hundred people that live on this island. And um, it used to be this really vibrant, thriving community, but because there was an oil spill, because they were all fishermen, it's really like depleted their ability to make a livelihood. And it's really kind of sucked the life out of all of these families, right? And there's different things that are going on, like tragedies and all that type of stuff. But what it really points out to me, and this may seem a little bit of a stretch, but this is what I think about when I'm watching shows like this, is often we think of the family as apolitical, right? Mm -hmm. Like every policy, we're all about families and supporting families and what that means. But when it comes to it, right, like if we were as a society, as a culture, really invested in families, Mm. we would be more concerned with the context, the political context, the emotional context, the economic context, Mm. the social context in which families are embedded and ways as a political body, as a country, as a state can really support these families. Because what you see in these families are they have been asked to adapt so much to the economic, to the cultural context in which they're embedded that the ability to maintain relationships becomes only for those who have incredible amounts of resilience 
right? In order to, you know, maintain your relationships, it's important to have a place where you feel safe, a place where you could provide, have food and shelter. But what I think happens, and this is evident in Midnight Mass as well, is often when families are asked to adapt so much, we don't go like, oh, it's because the environment they're in. We're saying, oh, there must be something wrong with these people. There must be yeah. something wrong with this family. And so we perpetuate the cycle. Well, only if you were better at communicating, only if you were. Now, those things are important. And, you know, like we talk about that a lot on this podcast, you know, ways in which to enhance and improve those relationships. But if you remove it from the context, right, anybody who's in a toxic enough environment is not going to be able to sustain relationships. You know, the amount we ask families to adapt sometimes is so hard and so stressful that it's almost impossible to maintain some of those relationships. Right. You know, people do show incredible resilience to toxic situations, but is that really the type of resilience we want to create in families? So that's what I really love how the show is embedded, right? It's literally showing families who have been depleted of their social and economic resources to be able to sustain these relationships and the negative effect that has had not only just on individual families, but on the community as a whole. So and this is where the horror part comes in. It's like sucks the life out of things. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I highly recommend. <laughs> yeah, you're, you know what, Sarah, I don't, I don't feel like this will be for you. <laughs> Not my um, but it's a really great show. If you're into kind of like every fall, we really want to watch kind of some scary haunting shows. And this is definitely one of them. And the person who plays the new priest in this series is really creepy and really good. Uh, really well done and illustrates the important context in which families are embedded and how that toxicity or how much we're asking families to adapt can really decimate those relationships. So check out Midnight Mass if you like horror movies, series, that kind of stuff. Awesome. Now we're going to move to our academic deep dive segment and talk about a new paper titled Spatial Proximity as a Behavioral Marker of Relationship Dynamics in Older Adult Couples, written by Drs. Brian Ogilski and Shannon Mejia and their team at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, which I always want to pronounce Urbana-Champaigna because I just feel like that would be better. But it's Oh, fine. I see. Mm -hmm. Recently published in the Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, these authors explore how older couples' physical closeness is linked to partners' heart rates. Very fascinating. They explain how as couples age together, partners become more and more interdependent. Their lives become increasingly intertwined, and they rely on each other for emotional support and basic needs. Because of this increasing interdependence, though, older couples' relationship quality is especially important. When it's good, they can both benefit. When it's bad, it may have worse consequences for their health and well-being. The authors also suggest we may be able to measure these relationship dynamics of closeness, support, and how attuned people are to each other by measuring their heart rates. In fact, prior research has shown that how much partners' heart rates synchronize when they are physically close reflects how their bodies co-regulate and how 
psychologically connected and present they are in the interactions they're having. Therefore, the authors of this paper suggest that it's not enough to just ask older couples to describe the dynamics of their relationship on self-report surveys or study their interactions in labs, so like observational. Instead, to be able to really understand how older couples connect with each other, support one another, buffer against stress, offer affection, or recover from an argument, we need to study them in their natural lived environments and capture their proximity and patterns. Really, really fascinating. I always love this physiological matched with, you know, self-report, psychological, this mind-body connection type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah, how in the world did they do this? I'm so excited. What did they find? Yeah, so they measured uh, these social interactions between partners as spatial proximity, as you just described, Patricia. So this distance of partners from each other, and they tested heart rate, especially whether heart rates between partners synchronized and the timing of when their heart rates increase and decrease. Um, related to how physically close their partners were to each other. So they did that over a 14-day diary study of 10 couples who were an average of 74 years old and had been together an average of 46 years from the Midwest, as always. (gasps) Jacob's favorite part of the country. Where the hardy people are. (laughs) Well, I have no idea if that then had an impact. It's a limitation is there's incredibly hardy people in the Midwest. And so I'm sure it impacts the findings. How is how is that linked to uh, what you just talked about in terms of resiliency and families? Oh, you were talking to Jacob. Yeah, wow, that felt like a really pointed question. I'll rescue that from Jacob. Uh, so they Thank set up you. in participants' homes that attach these special anchors to their walls throughout their house. Which then I know Patricia's face was like, what? I agree. That was the same face I made when I read this paper. Throughout their house, they had all these anchors. And they interacted with these small mobile receivers or tags that the participants wore on lanyards. And I know. So as they move through their house, the anchors on the walls interact with the tags they're wearing so that they can tell where in the house they are and where they are in the house in relation to their partner. Mm. So the anchors connected to this uh, local computer that stored the partner's location information and um, resulted in quote, 3D location data accurate wow. to the centimeter. I know. Wow. wow. Wild. I when know. you said that, I just thought of the anchors connected to the local computer. The local wow. computers connected no. to the... You didn't, you, no. <laughs> wow. The scrambled eggs really, really got to you today, huh? <laughs> what hot. did your husband put in those eggs? <laughs> oh, boy. Hot sauce. So they only measured the distance between... Uh, partners during the day and only when they were in their homes because there's no technology that they know of or that I know of that measures distance when they're like out because they didn't want to measure them when they're getting it on at night sure they didn't say that but I would guess they probably wanted to give some privacy um these if these authors ever listen they butchered this so bad I apologize to the full team who did some incredible science here, which I'm going to move on to describe. 
<laughs> so <laughs> when they measure distance between partners, they uh, describe it in three different ways. So they calculated it as close proximity when partners mm. were within two meters of each other or in each other's personal space. I had to look up what two meters was because I'm from the US. Yeah. Two meters scientifically makes better sense, but six feet, seven inches. So that's just your personal space. Moderate proximity is time spent two to four meters apart, which is one sort of social space. And then out of proximity, which is more than four meters apart. And I, again, looked that up. That's about 13 feet. Then they recorded partners' heart rates via Fitbits that were given to each of those partners. Oh, very clever. Yes. So they wore the tags throughout the day. They wore the Fitbits day and night. And then they answered surveys about relationship quality, their physical health symptoms, stress, mental health, positive and negative affect, like those mood pieces, daily conflict, every night for 14 days. Wow. Yeah. So they got phone calls in the morning from researchers to remind them to turn on and wear your tags. Put your lanyards on, friends. And then each evening, they got another reminder call to complete their survey. How much did they get paid to do this? Oh, yeah. I definitely included that in my notes. It was the detail I was waiting for. (laughs) Um, Come, uh, staple anchors to my walls and come watch me for 14 days. It's a lot of labor. I also have no idea that the anchors were stapled. I assume not. Um, uh, (laughs) But they were compensated $200. Okay. Yeah. I'd be game for that. Like 14 days, watch me for 200 bucks. Yeah, I'm totally game. <laughs> it's a big commitment. It is um, a big commitment. And I'd be game uh, for $200 a day. Show that's for science. For but science. it's for science, Patricia. It says the relationship scientist. Good Lord. <laughs> you could up that compensation. But they aligned their location and their heart rate data via the timestamps on each. They also had a baseline survey of like relationship dynamics, et cetera. Um, so what they found was that couples spent anywhere from 10 to 56% of their time awake within close proximity within that. Oh, um, uh, <laughs> aw, that's so cute. Within like six and a half feet of each other. Um, on average, these couples had high levels of satisfaction and positive affect, low levels of stress. They had over 600 observations per day per couple. Wow. Ton of data. So first, what they sort of describe is that the total time spent together over the two weeks um, didn't really have a clear connection to relationship quality. There was a lot of variability in how much total time they spent together. And it wasn't really um, tied to what they were describing was happening in terms of how they were satisfied or their conflict, etc. It was more about the daily context of what they were each going through and sort of interacting on a daily basis that determined mm. proximity. Okay. So they calculated how partners distance from one another, the wife's heart rate, the husband's heart rate, were all correlated. And also which of these precedes the others. So like, right, so is our physiological reaction changing when we either sort of perceive or sort of intend to move closer or move away or just becoming closer physically change our physiological reaction to that, Um, which could look different, I think, depending on many, many different things, which is sort of their point, right? So they gave a few examples of what this looks like. So couple three, the husband's above average heart rate occurred after his wife's above average heart rate, which began on average about six minutes before his. Wow. So as his wife gets physiologically a little bit of evidence, maybe of a little bit more stress, her heart rate starts to increase. He picks up on that and attunes, and there's like a six-minute lag time before his heart rate starts to go up. Couple four was the second example they gave. The husband's below average heart rate, so his heart rate starts to drop with a below average distance between him and his wife that follows about three minutes later. 
on average. As you can imagine, uh, his heart rate slows down before he moves closer to his wife. He's potentially perceiving that or preparing for, um, I'm going to come closer to her, and already starts regulating his heart rate to slow down, decreases potentially his stress. So then, once they had a specific correlation between the proximity and heart rate for each partner across the 14 days for each couple, so how strongly the two were related over the two weeks uh, for each individual couple, they then tested which partner led the dynamic on each day of those two weeks. Um, And essentially what they found was they could not predict the distance between partners without the heart rate data from both the husband and the wife. Wow. That's cool. It's so cool. The calculations in this paper are incredibly complicated. It's very, very cool. It is a methodological paper, meaning what they're doing in this paper is they're describing a new kind of science that could be used Mm. to tap into these interpersonal dynamics in our relationships on a much more moment-to-moment basis. Um, So it's not really a study that's intended to tell us how this works across couples, um, which is a little bit different than we typically talk about on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. I couldn't see this paper and not bring it here because it's so cool. I think what the cool takeaways are is that this physical spatial proximity, how close we are to each other and our heart rate, they are all sort of essential to predicting each other at any given moment. So how close we are together impacts our body, but also vice versa. And we can't understand one without the other Mm. um, in their sort of really in-depth study analysis of how couples move and literally dance around each other right um the strength of each of those things though how they're associated changes day to day for each couple so it is um, a really interesting idea about we respond and attune to each other in sort of unique ways in each moment and that sort of drives or is driven by how close we are to each other physically but that also sort of varies on a day-to-day basis wow um i know so i'm really interested in how that maybe sort of looked during um, a lot of that more intense co-residential quarantine, right, where people were stuck at home together, like how this sort of maybe shifted over time, um, how this shifts as people are sort of increasingly returning to work. But I think for listeners, the takeaway is potentially that how we interact with one another is really, really key. And paying attention to this information for you specifically for your relationship and for you as a partner in that relationship may give you more information than any amount of good or bad advice about relationships because each of these couples varied day to day but there were so many differences across couples between couples that I think paying attention to whether or not you seek each other out for comfort or avoid each other when you're angry physically but also how your partner impacts your physiological experience of stress and vice versa, thinking about how attuned you are to yourself, how attuned you are to your partner, how your partner impacts how your body feels, and when your body is dysregulated, how it impacts how you check into or treat your partner or your children or your friends, right? Or your neighbors, if you've had a really, really rough morning and you're taking that trash out and they're staring at you and your jammies and you're like, it's been a day. <laughs> is that not anybody else? Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> So I think just how you use this information to once you recognize it can be really valuable. Some people don't have words, don't use a lot of feelings words, right? So we're therapists yeah. and we use a lot of feelings language, emotion language, but that's not how everyone operates. So sometimes attuning to how your body responds in a situation is the best way to sort of identify what's going on for me right now. And then how do I use that data, that emotion, that body response to understand how I'm about to respond to my partner. 
Yeah. It's a really, really cool study. Thinking about that causes you to slow down your thought process, which yeah. could slow down your heart rate too, or change your heart rate. I guess it could also speed up yeah. your heart rate. But I was particularly fascinated by that couple four who, you know, preemptively before going into the proximity closeness yeah. with his wife, his heart rate yes. slowed down. And understanding that, what was it? Was it like relaxation? Was it deep breaths? I, I'm just so curious, like if there was any cognitive thought process before going into that. And also similarly with couple three, like how mm -hmm. much of this is present in our cognitions, you know, when we move in and out of these situations. My guess is yeah. that very little is, but I don't know. It's really cool. Yeah, it's very, very cool. Boo! Boo-hoo! Yeah! Finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationship from movies and TV shows. And we read endless advice spewed at us on all of the social medias, blogs, and numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't actually good for our relationships. This is the part of the show where we use science to decide if the advice is good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Get at us on the Twitter, the Insta, the Facebook at attachedpodcast or go to attachedpodcast.com and send us a message. As always, please rate and review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app or the YouTube or both or like download all the apps and like subscribe to it on all the apps and like rate it on all the apps. Is that too much? Maybe. It's too much. It's definitely, it's asking it's definitely too, from the woman who just wanted $200 a day to participate <laughs> in a research study. It feels like a lot to ask for people. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I know I am the worst research participant ever. Surveys oh. annoy me. I do a lot of survey research. So I always think what would convince me to take the survey and participate. And if I can be convinced, then I think um, maybe other people will too. Whereas I'm a big sucker. And if you ask me to, I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll totally do that for free. <laughs> I can't say and no. Then I'm in the middle. I'll be like, yeah, I can do this. I'll start and I'll be like, get bored halfway through and then quit. Oh, I'm, I'm that person. I'm oh, that person. No. You're the missing data. Oh, yeah, I'm the missing data. Nice. You can put this out there. Oh, man. <laughs> combined we are um horrible research participants that we wish no um researcher has i feel like except sarah except sarah except sarah <laughs> it's just i'm secretly resentful but, uh, of myself that's i have no boundaries that's what it is <laughs> then she'll skew your data with that's right um, her negative positive affect, negative affect. <laughs> oh, I was thinking positive. oh, oh sure sure affect sure. all over the place just affect anywho also you know share the podcast with your loved ones if you want to after all that. So this episode, in Good or Bad Advice, we're going to talk about various things on social media. The first one that I would like to share with you is from an article shared of an interview given by Megan Fox. Megan Fox is an actress. Um, does any of you know who she's currently dating? Yeah. Machine Gun Kelly. Machine Gun Kelly. Do you want me to sing some of his songs? Yeah. I'm a fan. Oh, no, thanks. Nope. Nope. Okay. 
I'm good. I could not list one of his songs, but that's fine. Uh, They're in a newish relationship and they've really been making like the rounds on the red carpet, like obsessed with each other, kind of photo ops on the red carpet. Um, And here is how they're currently describing their relationship. This is on the GQ interview, how Megan Fox is describing the relationship. It's ecstasy and agony for sure. I don't want people to think anything's perfect with us. I didn't say it was the darkest fairy tale for no reason. There's also the demonic side. Even our first kiss, she wouldn't kiss me. We just put our lips in front of each other and breathed each other's breath, and then she just left. So that's how they're currently describing their love affair. And I'm just curious what you're thinking in terms of good or bad advice for expectations or hashtag relationship goals. Jacob? So I would say bad advice. The reason why I would say this is like, I think it's okay to have like up and downs in your relationship. You're going to have times when you're feeling close, times when you're feeling distance. And maybe especially at the beginning of a relationship, you're trying to negotiate the amount of closeness and separateness you have as a new couple. But this sounds like ecstasy in the darkest fairy tale seems a little extreme to me. Now, it could be that Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly are just trying to get clicks on the social meds, as they say, to like describe that or to generate buzz around their relationship. But if it is like that, that level of polarity, I think, can be problematic, right? It's normal to have swings and differences in your relationship, but to have this extremeness, like we're in ecstasy and then it's the darkest fairy tale, that's concerning to me. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say bad advice to take advice from Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox about what your relationship should look like. Bad advice from Jacob Woods. I don't even think I understand what that person was saying. (laughs) Those aren't words that are like applied to relationships. Like what's demonic about the relationship? I, that feels really concerning for me. Um, I do really like the background music, the, um, uh, Twilight. Oh shoot. Twilight backgrounds. That's that's a very good touch. Uh, That's all I have to say about that. I don't know who that is. I don't know what these words are. I guess bad advice. It it sounds real sketch. Science. That's science. (laughs) So bad advice. These should not be hashtag relationship goals, I think is what we are um, coming down to. 100%. This next one is a TikTok from someone I follow, Debbie Moore. I think she's actually here in Tennessee. I love this quote from Brene Brown. All I know is that my life is better when I assume that people are doing their best. It keeps me out of judgment and lets me focus on what is and not what should or could be. Powerful quote. What are we thinking? Good or bad advice? Good advice. Uh, If you're not familiar with Brene Brown, uh, she's a clinical research professor of social work at the University of Houston, I want to say, I think, Um, and does a lot of cool, you know, she's kind of achieved this like guru status, but I think one thing that sets her apart is she's actually rooted this in, you know, decades of qualitative research, right? She's just not making this up because she's good at speaking, which sometimes a lot of relationship people do. What I like about this quote is that idea of being present. And I think it was kind of alluded to a little bit in uh, the research we just talked about, right? If we can not come in like 
really amped up or really kind of in this place where we're going to say, oh, let's judge these people or why aren't they doing more? And really saying, you know, I'm going to assume that people are doing the best they can and I'm going to meet them where they are. I think that is great, not only like romantic family relationship advice, but for like other relationships, friends, coworkers, those types of things. So good advice and good advice to take advice from Brene Brown. <laughs> good advice. Uh, and a meta good advice from Jacob Woods. I agree with both of those takeaways. My bias would be more people know Brene Brown than Machine Gun Kelly. Was that the gentleman's name? <laughs> it was the gentleman's name. Very good. Uh, but that's also just my worldview. Um, no, I think that's lovely advice. Um, everyone is trying their hardest and it works best when we give people the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. So good advice all the way around. My only concern sometimes is when people take like just a quote snippet and it turns into a realm of toxic positivity. You know, oh, sure. like, oh, I have to assume that people are that's right. um, always you know, out for the best or always doing the best that they can. So sometimes advice like this, I worry in specific context, but I think sure. as a general way to live your life, it helps you to reduce the likelihood of becoming cynical and carrying around that ickiness with you all yes. the time. If someone isn't doing their best and is out to get you, it's okay to not have this um, attitude towards that would be my only caveat there. I am very curious about what you guys think about this next one. It's kind of a similar idea of someone sharing a researcher's um, findings about relationships. This is by Abraham Piper on, you guessed it, the TikToks. Research has shown the single biggest determining factor in whether a happy relationship will last. In 1990, psychologist John Gottman set up a lab to feel like a lovely bed and breakfast and brought in couples to watch how they interact. Somehow this feels like a very pleasant and a very creepy experiment all at once. But I digress. Over the course of his research, he found a single action that he could literally just count and then predict with 94% accuracy whether a relationship would remain happy. When one partner says, oh, that's a beautiful bird outside, does the other partner respond with something like, wow, that is beautiful? Or do they blow their partner off and ignore the bird? It's a tiny moment, but that's what makes them important because there can be so many of them. They pile up. Gottman famously termed these interactions bids. We're asking for a small connection. How's our partner going to respond? And he discovered that couples that would later split up only turn toward each other 33% of the time. But the couples that made it for the several years he was testing anyway nine out of ten times point being when the love of your life points at a bird look at the fucking bird it's the small <laughs> things that create connection in fact there's another study that somewhat counterintuitively shows that happy relationships are built more on how we treat each other in happy times than how much we're there for each other in hard times but that's for another video come on if you feel like it so i think wholeheartedly as a podcast we like by and large gottman's work so for this video i'm kind of more curious about his framing of Gottman's work, how he pitched it, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so I think I do tend to like Gottman's work. And I also want to tie this to a little bit where I kind of see what you're bringing up is this issue, right? Like if in one of my classes, I've had my students read basically all of the available research that's out there for John Gottman. And even though it's good research, as in all research, there's a lot of limitations to it. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, he's breaking down this, you know, he's talking about the bids for connection, which Gottman has shown really can predict divorce or relationship satisfaction later on. I think, though, that one of the issues I have with Gottman's research and even with trying to distill it into a TikTok is it's decontextualized. Yeah. Right. Gottman is focusing on only interactions that occur within a couple. What if halfway through one of these couples loses a job or, you know, like there is 
a big uh, event that happens that really influences this couple's life, that too is going to be important. And those things are out of our control. Granted, the bids that are there can be present, can help you, you know, weather that storm. But like I was saying at the beginning, sometimes we are putting the, well, if you would have done this better as a couple, you would stay together. But the exterior, the environment the couple's embedded in can have a big, if not larger effect that can overwhelm the amount of bids for connection, right? So while I do like Gottman's work to be able to describe interrelationship dynamics, I think, and again here, great advice generally compared to what you probably get on TikTok. <laughs> but you need to think about like, you know, research doesn't prove anything. It demonstrates possible associations. And if you're decontextualizing that research, you're actually in some ways kind of breaking it down into that toxic positivity, yeah. right? Oh, well, you know, if you would just bid for connection, it doesn't matter that, you know, you lost a parent and then your partner lost their job and then mm -hmm. you had a kid that had health concerns, you know, like you should have just been able to make it. Right. And I, I, yeah. Or, and also it doesn't matter if you have contempt in your relationship, right? Or if yep. you're critical in your relationship, Which are the as long other. as you- yeah, as long as you respond to that bid, you look at that fucking bird, as he says, then everything's going to be fine. I agree with you, what you're saying. The, the context is so critical. Um, so good advice, mostly-ish. Yeah? Is like, that a fence, Jacob? Is that a fence? No, like, uh, well, it's not a fence. It's like, <laughs> I, I use Gottman's work with some of the couples I work with, yeah. but I make sure to contextualize it. Yeah, of course. Right? Because if you are not contextualizing, you see, thinking about broader sociocultural factors it's not right like yeah. it's just setting people up to feel like it's all on them and right. that's i don't think healthy that that's a really good point uh woods yeah i think it's good advice um i uh, think his framing is super cute super fun super relatable i really like the takeaway like just pay attention to the bird like your partner is looking to connect with you. I do think it's a pretty accurate description of Gottman's foundation too, in terms of how he sees uh, these bids for connection are attempts to connect with and get our partner's attention and um, share something with them, uh, is I think what Gottman considers to be like the fundamental um, bottom yeah. line or the fundamental building block of emotional connection. So I do think Gottman does see it that way. And I do think he thinks that how we um, respond to those bids is really key. But the other piece that this person's not really talking about is it's also how we make those bids that is key. So it's not just the fact that we should turn towards, as this person's describing, that we should acknowledge the bid, that we should engage it. And it can be tiny little moments. It doesn't have to be a big celebration of like, oh my God, look at that bird and where's his family? And oh my God, could it be his birthday today? You don't need to explode <laughs> the bird. It right. just is like, just turn towards and acknowledge the fact that your partner's looking for some attention and wanting to connect with you versus ignoring it missing it entirely because you are absorbed in other stuff and stress, et cetera, or becoming sort of aggressive or argumentative about it. I didn't want to hear about the stupid bird. I was about to make dinner, right? right? It's like incredibly rejecting. But it's also how we make those bids, which this person's not talking about, that I think is often sort of a stumbling block that couples have in terms of we assume that I'm bidding for connection and you are obviously understanding that and your rejection of it is because you're a jerk, 
versus I'm not necessarily being very clear about what I need in the moment and the fact that I'm looking to connect with you. Um, we rely on a lot of nonverbal bids, which are bids though should be acknowledged, but doesn't always carry the same kind of clarity as when we use our words, right? And we sort of ask exactly for what we need um, in terms of, right, it, I had a really hard day at work today and it would be really helpful for me to talk with you about that is much more clear than, you know, sighing or stomping or I don't know, et cetera. So uh, that's the other piece that I think is missing here that makes it more a relationship process. I agree. So good advice, I think, overall is what we're saying, but maybe it is the nature of a TikTok and him trying to make it jazzy by like focusing it's, on this. I on think this it is bird. a good job. Oh yeah, no. It's yeah, it's, no it's good. It's science, but it but it does lose a little bit of that context. So just know that it's not just the bird, right? Bids can look a whole lot of different ways. Yeah. So. that's the episode title right there. It's not just the bird. <laughs> it's not just the bird. I'll show you the bird. Oh my. Okay. Sorry, I was rejecting your bid. <laughs> <laughs> Double birds. <laughs> Double middles. Um, right at yeah. Okay, so this next one again from TikTok. You guys know I love it. Gemma Transformational Coach. Oh. Is her name. Do you want to know one of the reasons why I think your conversations with your partner about your unhappiness within the relationship aren't leading to positive significant change? I think it's because your partner may not be feeling compassionate empathy for you. Years ago, when I first learned about the three types of empathy from the research of Paul Ekman and Daniel Goleman, it made intellectual sense to me, yet it wasn't until I moved through the end of my marriage and then reflected back on and was curious about why did this man who I know cared about me so much and cared about our relationship thriving not check back in with me about my emotional suffering, not take action to change the patterns in our relationship that I was talking about. And then when I thought about it through the lens of this theory, I gained a better understanding of what maybe happened. So I want to share it with you in case it's helpful for you. If you're speaking with your partner and they're experiencing the first layer of empathy, cognitive empathy, it means they're gaining more knowledge about what you're experiencing. If they move to the second layer of empathy, which is emotional empathy, that means they're sharing some of these feelings with you in the moment. And then if they move to the third layer of empathy, which is compassionate empathy, it's almost like a combination of cognitive empathy and emotional empathy, yet taken a step further. They have a deep understanding of what you've been experiencing. They're sharing some of those emotions and then they feel compelled to take action in a supportive and helpful way in order to relieve some of your suffering. So if during your conversations with your partner, they may say the right things in the moment, and you may even get a sense that when you're describing your sadness, they're feeling some sadness with you, and yet nothing changes, it could be because, and I don't think this is the whole picture, but I do think this is a factor, it could be because they either haven't learned how to feel compassionate empathy for somebody else, or they're not capable of it. I loved both of your faces during that TikTok. <laughs> um, you were going through like stages. Both of you. <laughs> Grief? <laughs> I don't know what it was, but it was definitely stages. Another one kind of regurgitating research. Um, thoughts, good or bad advice. And I think I just inhaled a gnat. <coughs> I don't know how I'm like indoors. I will own some of this bias, right? Like anytime I see somebody as a life coach or a transformational coach or as a relationship coach, that's a red flag for me. 
Um, I think that there probably are and can be good coaches out there that are helpful for people's relationships and lives. But that is a de-credential. You know, like anybody could just put up a website and say, I'm a relationship coach. Mm-hmm. And I tend to shy away from that. And I think it's kind of evidenced in um, the way she described that research. I'm not familiar with that research or if it exists, I would have to go look it up. But I think that way she is filtering or talking about that research to kind of say like, oh, if your partner, there's these kinds of empathies and then if nothing changes, oh, your partner's a sociopath. I don't think that is as explicit as what she was saying, but that's what it kind of felt like to me, right? There are so much more relationship science context that I think could potentially explain that situation better. And I don't know, I'm not familiar with this empathy theory that she's referring to, but I don't know. Like, I just can never trust. And if you saw my face, like some of that feels a little weird and fishy to me. Um, So it could be potentially that she's describing that research correctly. And because I'm not familiar with it, but Mm -hmm. also if I am going to get my information from somewhere, I typically don't want to get it from somebody who describes himself as a coach, (laughs) unless they're teaching me how to play soccer or basketball or something like that. Well, and I also think what you're getting at, too, is this inherent bias the three of us have between individual research and dyadic or systems type research, right? So this research is much more individual focused than dyadic and relational. But I'm hearing bad advice and potentially bad advice um, source from the person. That's what I Yeah, hear. like coaches tend to be more gurus, right? And like I referred to Brene Brown as like somebody who is seen as a guru, but really has a solid research foundation. Right. Um, and often coaches have little or no training regarding like relationships. It's kind of like this happened to me. So I'm going to, it's kind of like how we built a lot of our yeah. substance use treatment centers. Well, I recovered this way, so it's going to work for you too. And yeah. that's not always the most helpful. Yeah. And we've talked about that before looking at different licensures and credentials and things like that. So what's good or bad advice? So um, it's an interesting contrast to that last example where I think that TikTok user was really skilled at succinctly describing one key sort of relationship finding. This one I found to be a very convoluted message. Um, And I think a really um, concerning application of how we can understand empathy, right? So what she's describing is this um, sort of tiered nature of empathy, that there's this difference between how we can understand what somebody's feeling, how we can sort of move into those feelings and share them with somebody else, and then how we can move into action and try to do something about it. It sounds relational, but it is actually a very individual way to understand empathy because it's saying the responsibility of my partner is to excel at all three of those things and move in to fix and change things. And they should know to do that, how to do that, and consistently do that. When actually, I think a lot of times there's conflict in partners when somebody is feeling so intensely what their partner is feeling and they move in to try to fix it. That's actually a big, huge issue that it tends to sort of sometimes fall on gender lines in couples, right? Where couples are men and women, men sometimes tend to want to fix things. It's how they sometimes respond to that distress. And um, partners don't always find that to be 
very helpful. I think it's different if we're saying um, that you can demonstrate how much you care and that you are attuned to your partner by asking, how would you like me to respond? Are you looking for me to just listen? Is there something that I can do? Or even sort of um, being uh, transparent about, I have this like need to want to help you or like what you're describing about what happened to work at you today, like is making me really angry. Like I want to do something about that. But also, is that where you want me to go? Like, is that helpful at all? Um, is Do you want me different. to go talk to your boss for you? <laughs> Do you want to talk about getting a new job because you're yeah. so stressed? Or does that add to your stress, right? Is that not helpful? But also, again, in thinking about that last TikTok right before, um, it is a dyadic process where we have to ask the people that we care about for the kinds of help we need also. Um, and so compassionate empathy, the way she's describing it, sounds like a really um, misconstrued idea of the other person, the other, is always required to sort of move into action and take practical steps to reduce somebody else's pain when that is just not always A, possible, B, it's sometimes misguided, and C, it doesn't talk about the person experiencing pain and their responsibility to communicate about it. So, And if they want hey, help with it. Not yeah. good advice. Yeah, it's bad advice. Bad advice, um, seemingly all around. Um, maybe just the research we don't like either we think is bad, but also maybe the communication unclear. I, yeah, I sort of wonder if maybe she's misconstruing it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't, not- we don't know. We need to maybe f- do a deep dive on that research. Or not. We'll see if that happens. <laughs> this is advice for all those young single women out there. Three things I wish I'd known when I was young and single. First of all, men don't fall in love through sex. They fall in love through trust and loyalty, and they actually don't trust a woman who gives them sex early. Secondly, men don't fall in love because they met the one. When they're at their state of readiness, they take whoever's up at bat. Looking for a man at his state of readiness is key. And finally, women who get commitment get it because they ask for it, and they're not afraid to dump men who won't give it because they know there's plenty more where he came from. So... Um, you know how I said earlier, don't always, you know, coach, I always have a red flag. Um, <laughs> so here, Dr. Uh, Wendy Lee Walsh, who I just Googled, did get a PhD in clinical psychology in 2006. Um, cool. Good for her. Uh, I would also say that just that. because somebody has, yeah, I was going to say just because somebody has a PhD doesn't mean you should trust them either. This I was going to say, we all, we all have PhDs. <laughs> well, like. And faucets. <laughs> We're proud of those too. <laughs> this is terrible advice. I don't know what she's talking about or what she's saying. It is not grounded in science. It is nothing. It is just, I mean, it's basically like men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and then let's put a more um, emotional stuff onto women to, I, I don't right. know. It's it's bad advice. Don't, don't listen to Dr. Wendy Walsh. She is not America's or Canada's. I think that's where she's from. Uh, as she builds herself, relationship expert. This is not good expert advice. Oh boy. <laughs> sorry. She, uh, I, I, sorry. I'm, maybe she is, I mean, her website has her as a brand ambassador and a relationship Ooh. expert and coaching for men. And she has a podcast, but sorry, Dr. Wendy Walsh. Um, I didn't know she had all that when I chose her. Yeah. Um, maybe she has good advice. There's some people who are saying some good things about her on here. But uh, not well, this that, one. That not determines this one. it. <laughs> not this one. So bad advice, Wendy Walsh. Like, 
go read the science around relationship formation. And this is not what we're going to be talking about. Bad advice. Uh, women and men go have safe sex um, and enjoy it. Woods? <laughs> This is, it's such bad advice, um, but it doesn't start poorly. Like she suggests something at the beginning about like how important it is to build relationships on foundations of trust and like loyalty and commitment. Something about the way she starts, I don't remember exactly, but she starts with some like important keywords. Those things are important to relationships. It's all downhill from there. It's all wildly inaccurate. That's not how men operate. That's not how women operate. Definitely do not. Listen to that. That TikTok. Don't take that (laughs) advice. Don't do that. No. Thank you for listening to Attached. Remember to call us, email us, or get us on all those social needs. You know how we love them. Um, About any relationship advice you've received or that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it. 